0: The name Vinko Bogotaj is probably not a familiar name to you. But in the 1970s and 80s, just a a four-second black-and-white video clip of him was arguably the most famous video in the entire world. His video was part of an opening montage overlaid with these words, spanning the whole globe to bring you the constant variety of sport, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, the human drama of athletic competition. This is ABC's wide world of sports. So you may have guessed it. Vinko Bogotaj was the agony of defeat guy. (laughs) He was was a ski jumper who came gliding down the launch ramp, but just before takeoff, he, he slipped and started spinning wildly out of control. He flew off the elevated platform and crashed into a group of spectators. He wiped out so dramatically that... People cringed every time they saw the beginning of the show. In fact, the crash was so iconic, very, very few people can remember any other scene from the show's opening other than his crash. In other words, he was viral before viral was a thing. The thrill of victory. And the agony of defeat are are, are two feelings that line up on opposite ends of the spectrum of human emotion. The thrill of victory is often strongest when defeat seems certain. But with a sudden turn of events, victory is won. Conversely, the, the agony of defeat tastes most bitter when victory seemed in hand but was suddenly lost at the very last second. In today's passage, we'll see the surprising event that sits at the very center of a sudden change in our story. This seemingly insignificant detail provides the impetus for a dramatic reversal this reversal points forward to a triumphant victory and it portends a most bitter defeat our passage is Esther chapter 6 recall that as chapter 5 came to a close Haman had just given approval for this impaling pole, five feet high, to be constructed overnight so that he could execute Mordecai on it. Hear then the word of our great God. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ashuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, Let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden." Take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. (laughs) Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered, and Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai... Before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuch arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So Lord, now lead us by your Spirit. To reveal your greatness to us, we pray. We we pray this in Jesus, our beloved Lord. In his name we're praying this, Lord. Amen. So, we can describe the main, main idea of Esther 6 like this. God's sovereignty is often displayed most significantly in the details of seemingly insignificant situations. I wonder if you've seen that in your own life. God's sovereignty is displayed most significantly in the details of seemingly insignificant situations. And I want to look through two lenses this morning as we approach the text. The first one is the hinge lens. In other words, I want to look for the the turning point in the story here. And then secondly, I want to look through the the honor lens or the honor-dishonor lens and, and, and see that theme just threaded throughout this particular chapter. But we'll begin with our first lens. If you remember back a few weeks ago in our introduction to the book of Esther, I mentioned that the author's use of time kind of clues us in to what's centrally important. Just in the first three chapters of Esther, nine years pass. But as you get into the central part of the book, into the heart of the book, in chapters 5 and 6 and 7... These events occur over over a total of just two days. In other words, pay close attention because something significant is unfolding. Now, the way God acts in the world, the way he displays his authority and his power and his sovereignty is just remarkable to me. I mean, since God is all-powerful, it wouldn't be surprising at all to us if he just constantly mesmerized us with his absolutely unassailable power. But as as impressive as things like stars or, or galaxies are, God often tends to exercise his sovereignty To exert his power in almost imperceptible ways. In fact, God seems to like to stack the deck against himself as much as possible and then show his invincible power, often in the subtlest of ways. It's fascinating. But if you think about it, the, the level of wisdom and knowledge and strength and authority, of creativity and of control, if you think about it, to show power subtly is even more impressive than just demonstrating brute force. In tough situations, when God acts with with. with just enough influence to ensure the outcome that he desires, it leaves us absolutely in awe of his ways. Now, biblical examples of this type of subtle strength, subtle sovereignty are numerous. Like sending a conquering king from heaven to earth whose life starts out in his mother's womb and his mom was a virgin. Subtle. Mind-blowing. Or think about the Old Testament. Father Abraham's, the patriarch of our faith, his wife was 90, and barren. And yet, God promised to bring a kingdom heir through her. Subtle, absolutely sovereign power. In fact, that's why Sarah laughed when she overheard God explain the plan. But God wasn't joking. Barrenness also afflicted Samson's mom, that is, before he was born, as well as Hannah, who bore the prophet Samuel, subtle, sovereign. Through them, God showed his ability to follow through with, well, everything. That he promises. Or think about God's interaction with, with Gideon. He told Gideon, you have too many soldiers with you for me to give the Midianites into your hand. What does that even mean? Why would God say that? You have too many soldiers for me to defeat Midian? Why? Judges 7-2, it's too many people lest Israel boast Over me, that my own hand has saved me. In other words, it's too many people to accomplish God's promises or God's purposes because He wants to be glorified among His people. So God dropped Gideon's fighters from 32,000 down to 300, and then God routed the Midianite army which was so massive, the men looked like locusts covering the desert. Their camels were so numerous, they were like sands on the seashore. Now that is stacking the deck against yourself. Yet God destroyed their entire army in one night with trumpets and broken pots. Therefore, to God alone, is the glory in fact god seems to prefer to do a lot with a little whether he does so dramatically or in ways that are so subtle they can almost seem coincidental have you ever felt comparatively small on the on the gifting spectrum <laughs> or have you ever wondered why it seems that Despite your efforts, you're only somewhat effective or partially successful, whether it's work or ministry or even raising your family. Could it be that your specific situation is actually intentional on God's part? Even if that's just for a season? Perhaps God is teaching you the same thing he taught the Israelites with the Midianites. To rely more fully upon him for power. And to trust more fully in him for the results of whatever happens next. So that he alone will be glorified in your life. Life. And that will happen when you when you realize there is no other hope that I have except for God, and I have to depend upon Him. Then you say, Soli Deo Gloria, forever and ever and ever. But ask the ask the Spirit to open your eyes because your deliverance may be at hand, but it may be far more subtle than you ever dreamed. I mean, even if your situation is bleak, or if the obstacles seem insurmountable, know that God has a habit of stacking the deck against himself so that he can reveal himself in glory to his people. He loves to do that. God can do anything he wants, Just think about it. Since God is for us, as the people of God, being outnumbered by our enemies is actually irrelevant to us. Being outfinanced by those opposing us is actually impossible, and being outsmarted is also, if we are depending upon God, because he is all-powerful, he's all-knowledgeable, he's all-wise... And he's richer than anybody else added up together. God can do anything he wants, any time he wants, to whomever he wants, for whomever he wants, with whatever he wants, in any way he chooses to do it. So, fear not, dear saint. Never, ever, ever lose hope. God is for us. In Esther... God really has stacked the deck against himself. A decree of destruction has gone out across the land that the people of God will be completely destroyed by the most dominant nation on earth. I don't think God was nervous. I don't think he sat there thinking, oh man, I didn't see that coming. Now what? Further, there's only two people who are in a position to help. The first one just risked her life by entering the presence of the king and the outcome of that conversation is still pending. The other who can help has an arch enemy who is bent on killing him. We might think about it like this. There is a a tidal wave of pending doom and unrelenting fury that is just cresting over the heads of Esther and Mordecai and God's people at this point in the story for all intents and purposes, they're dead. But the structure of the book of Esther and the centrality of chapter 6 in particular is the hinge upon which the entire story turns. Everything turns now. Have you ever experienced a just a seemingly insignificant event in your life that turned out to be extremely important. Perhaps even an event upon which your entire life turned. The first time Christy and I saw each other, we didn't even talk. I was, I, w- I was working at a, just a small grocery store for a few months right after I graduated from college. And she came in to talk to the store manager. I remember seeing her, and I remember thinking she seemed a little bit out of place. Because I was used to dealing with truck drivers and delivery guys all day long. And she was way prettier and way classier than the guys that I typically dealt with. But she wasn't there to see me. So I didn't think that much about it. That is, until she returned to the store the next day. And what happened next is a story for another day. But my point is, I had no idea. I had no idea that the that the gorgeous woman I'd just seen, even if ever so briefly, would one day become my covenant bride. She would one day become the mother of our two, three, four, five, six children. It's amazing. She's amazing. God's amazing. But, but that, that seemingly insignificant encounter, where unbeknownst to either of us, we actually did take note of the other, that insignificant encounter yielded a lifetime of joys. Listen to how dramatically Esther turns in just one chapter. At the close of chapter five, tell me, who has the upper hand? You got it. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said, "Let a gallows fifty cubits or seventy-five feet tall be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast." This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. He's in control. Chapter 6, verse 13. Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had just happened. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Who has the upper hand now? Mordecai. Much more on that little section next week. At the end of chapter 5, it appears that no matter what happens between Esther and the king, Mordecai is going to be dead in 12 hours or so. There's, there's no way around it. The gallows is being constructed through the night. (laughs) And the thought of executing Mordecai is consuming Haman's mind. Then, in an incredible turn of events, by the end of chapter 6, the very same counselors are telling Haman he has no chance of defeating Mordecai. That's utterly amazing. But what or whom accounts for this 180-degree reversal. Now, some of you may be familiar in your Bible studies with the, with the term chiasm or chiastic structure. A chiasm is a, is a literary tool or, or a technique where a sequence of events is described and then repeated in reverse order. Chi is the Greek letter X. So the idea is that what is at the center of the literary structure is the focal point of the passage. So if you like patterns, the pattern would be something like A, B, C, C, B, A. Forward and backwards, everything is pointing towards a central idea, which is the most important point. Now, if if you're working from the outside in, it would be A, B, C, or C, B, A. Whatever's at the center is what is most crucial in terms of how a chiasm is written. Impressively, the entire book of Esther is one large chiasm. So then in order to see the focal point, in order to see what we're supposed to see, we need to know what's at the center of the book. If X marks the spot, and that's the key to the story, what is the treasure then that's buried in the middle of Esther? What intervention is at the center? What rather intense event serves as the hinge that changes everything for the people of God. In Esther, chapter 6 and verse 1, on that night, the king could not sleep. That seems anticlimactic. (laughs) Or is it? Remember our main point. God's sovereignty is displayed most significantly in the details of seemingly insignificant situations. What demonstrates God's power and sovereignty more spectacularly? If God comes in and just wipes out the Persian empire, or if he says, you know how I can bring you down? You're going to have a restless night's sleep. We'll just see who's more powerful. I-, I doubt the king would have been intimidated by that. But the king's restless night is the insignificant detail upon which the people's survival rests. So let's look at our passage then through this, this, this hinge lens, or thinking about it specifically as the turning point of the entire What what conclusion are we supposed to draw? It just so happens on the very night when Mordecai is to be executed, the king can't sleep. I guess he had options, but it just so happens that he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, don't forget that the time that Mordecai saved the king's life when he exposed the assassination plot was like five years ago at this point in the story. So it's not like they just turned to the last entry and read it, right? They, they opened up this massive book about all the great things that the king had done so they could read to him, and it just so happens that they turned to a particular event, And it just so happens when they read this entry about what Mordecai had done, the king noticed something striking, and he says, what was done for Mordecai when he saved my life? Persian kings rewarded loyalty. It's extraordinary, if not miraculous, that they just forgot. Five years ago, they forgot to do anything for Mordecai, despite the fact that he had actually saved the king's life. That just so happens to come up again this night. But as they're talking, it must be the case that the king heard something out in the court. I mean, it's nighttime. It's the middle of the night. It's got to be quiet. But he hears somebody out in the court. So he asks, who's in the court? And Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So the young men say, Haman's standing in the court. So the king says, great, bring him in. It just so happened that Haman couldn't wait till the morning He couldn't wait till the morning to execute Mordecai, so he had to come in the middle of the night, which is the only reason he's standing there. And it just so happens that the king didn't mention Mordecai's name when he said to Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And it leads to an incredible reversal here in an instant. The question is, what conclusion are we supposed to draw? Is not the conclusion that There's no other explanation than that God himself, though he's not referenced, has rescued Mordecai and reversed his plight in utterly epic fashion. And since this section is the very center of the book of Esther, is not this reversal designed to be a harbinger of things to come for the people of God? And if this dramatic turn of events is pointing forward to the people of God or for the people of God, then we need to consider to what is this turning point actually pointing? For this answer, we need to look through our second lens, the honor lens. Now, as I reference some parts of the passage, this time be thinking through the lens of honor and dishonor. So it's an honor-shame culture. So, so note first the dishonoring humor that signals that the power of the empire is not actually as impressive as it appears. So as we come out of chapter 5 and move into chapter 6, recall, recall Vashti's refusal to allow herself to be gawked at by the king and by his officials way back in chapter 1. As a result of that bold decision, a decree went out across the whole empire that said, all women must give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. And then just savor the irony. (laughs) Savor the irony that the king's wife, Esther, is directing his actions at this point between the two banquets, and then just savor the irony that Haman's wife, Zeresh, is actually directing his decisions at this point. So number one and number two in the kingdom aren't so powerful or competent after all. Uh, That's enough to make an Old Testament Jew smirk (laughs) as he hears this story read. Picking up in verse 7, Haman said to the king, in answer to the question, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? (laughs) It's extraordinary that the king mentioned that he wanted to honor someone, and Haman can't think that it's even possible that the king would want to honor anyone else but him. But back to last week, that's why our self-deception and our idolatry is so blinding to us. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Hmm. So, king, not if it pleased the king, but I've been thinking about this for a while, king. Here you go. <laughs> For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and let the horse that the king has ridden, on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most most noble officials. Let Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, fantastic idea, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew. Now, if if you were the producer and, and you were, You were filming this. And you saw Haman leading Mordecai around the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. How would you direct that scene? (laughs) What is is Haman's facial expression at this point, right? I mean, you picture him going, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Except that if Haman does that, the king will kill him. So it has to look more like this. Thus it shall be done to the man the king delights to honor. But if you zoom in on his face, it tells the whole story. This is as embarrassing and infuriating as it could possibly be for Haman. But as Art referenced when he preached at the end of chapter 1, the one who is able to laugh in the face of the evil empire will never successfully be assimilated into it. Satire is thus a powerful antidote to despair. Or in our context, laughing at the enemy is a way of showing dishonor. It's a way of saying I oppose your ideals. I oppose your values, I oppose your actions. No matter how important they are to you, they are laughably absurd to me. And by doing so, I'm telling you you are no threat to me. I don't care what you do to me. That's the heart of the matter. Now this turn of events is it's it's as sudden as it is just spectacular. This has just happened over the course of a few hours. <clears throat> just a few hours ago, what was Mordecai doing? He was, he was laying in dust and ashes, mourning the death sentence that had been given to his people. But this common civil servant, who had, who had not been recognized for saving the king's life, has now been utterly transfigured, even if ever so briefly, He's been exalted higher than you could possibly imagine just a few hours before. Mordecai, the righteous Jew, is now robed in kingly attire, and he's riding the war horse of the most powerful man on earth. As a proclamation is made over him, thus shall it be done to the man the king delights to honor. It's hard not to think of another far more righteous Jew who ever so briefly, despite his rather common appearance, was transfigured on the mountain ever so briefly, revealing his true nature as God's glorious king, as a proclamation was declared over him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What's fascinating is after these events of exaltation, Both of these Jews went right back to work. Verse 12, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. We know Jesus walked right back down the mountain. In a kind of double imputation of honor and dishonor, not only was Haman's joy and honor transferred to Mordecai, the shame and mourning of Mordecai was transferred to Haman. As he, as he sneaks home with his head covered, utterly, utterly ashamed. The Jews' hopeless situation has been completely reversed just in an instant. The triumph of Mordecai previews the total deliverance of God's people from certain death and their coming triumphant victory. The debasing of Haman predicts the downfall of those trying to destroy God's people and their coming bitter defeat. The turning point or the hinge for the people of God in Esther was the sovereignty of God exercised just ever so subtly over a sleepless night in Susa, reminding the king that a righteous Jew had saved the king's life. The hinge for the people of God now is God's provision of a king who laid down his own righteous life for the unrighteous that he might bring us into the presence of God, full of joy and emptied of shame. Jesus is the hinge upon which the door of eternity swings foreshadowing what is to come, Mordecai the Jew has, has tasted the thrill of victory ever so briefly. And Haman, the enemy of God, has replaced Vincor Bogotaj as the poster boy for the agony of defeat. So as we turn now to the communion table... I want us to consider one more thought, as much as we revel in the, the reversal orchestrated between God and His enemies, the symbolism of this table is a stark reminder that we too were once god's enemies, until a particular turning point in our life, when we submitted our hearts and life to the ultimate hinge of all eternity, and that was Calvary's cross. God has intervened in some of our lives in a way that we might describe as subtle. In you know, others, in a way that could not be described in any other way than dramatic. But whether, whether you view your conversion as subtle or dramatic, God has worked with equal sovereign power in both to rescue you from your sin. We were once enemies of God, and now, now we are seated at his fellowship table. We traded our guilt and shame for the innocence and joy of the holy and righteous one. It is through his blood that our seat at this table was purchased on Calvary's cross. Praise be to Jesus and to his heavenly Father and to the most holy spirit of God forever and ever and ever. Amen.